Well, I think that's what's happening for a lot of Christians. The pressures are coming in and we're not even realizing it because we don't understand the nature of the culture. We don't understand ultimately what secularism is all about and how these messages are in great conflict with a biblical worldview. Welcome back to those who have been with us before on the podcast. If not, I'm Jim Daly, and that comment comes from a fascinating discussion that I had with uh, Natasha Crane about the difficulties Christians are facing with secularism. Have you felt it? She has some great comments on understanding what we're dealing with in this postmodern culture. Uh, welcome to Refocus with Jim Daly. So glad you're here. On the podcast, I get to ask uh, more challenging questions about the troubled culture we live in, and I hope this conversation provides some answers that you're looking for today. And interestingly enough, this conversation is about um, how culture sees or does not see some of the vices that we are hurtling toward and whether or not the culture can wake up to correct some of these uh, perilous directions that we've been going toward. One of the great difficulties we have in the church is, of course, the culture will seep into the church, but we've got to do what we have to do in order to keep as much of the culture from coming in as possible. We need to stay true to biblical principle. Natasha has done great research and provides a very helpful framework for engaging with the culture, and she's passionate about the significant discrepancy in numbers between those who identify as Christians and those who truly agree with the words that Jesus spoke and the principles that he pointed us toward. Natasha Crane is a speaker and author who's written four books, including the one we'll draw from today. It's called Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. You're going to benefit a lot, I believe, from this honest look at Christianity and how we often struggle with that dual citizenship between God's kingdom and the world's kingdom. Here now is my discussion with Natasha Crane on Refocus with Jim Daly. I uh, so appreciate the research that you put into your book. Uh, this is great. Faithfully different, regaining biblical clarity in a secular culture. Um, I think right now this couldn't be a more critical resource for Christians. Um, what motivated you to get here? Wh why did you do this? Well, for a lot of years, I was writing about apologetics specifically for parents, so I was kind of in a very specific zone of writing and speaking. But in 2020, with all the social unrest that started happening, my eyes just really opened to how much was going on in culture that I hadn't really focused on before. And I wrote this blog post called Five Ways That Christians Are Getting Swept Into a Secular Worldview in This Cultural Moment. And this thing went crazy online. It was liked and shared over 277,000 times. Yeah, it struck a nerve. It struck a nerve, absolutely, yeah. because I, I just was receiving emails from people for weeks saying, I was having trouble putting my finger on what exactly is going on right now. It doesn't seem biblical. A lot of these movements, a lot of these things that people are talking about and things that are going on, but I didn't know exactly what to do with it. So I realized that there was this real need for people to understand more clearly the difference between a biblical worldview and a secular one. And so that's really what led to me reading, yeah. writing Faithfully Different eventually. And and in fact, you looked at a lot of research. Uh, a lot of the research is fairly new, 2018, 2019, about where Christians or people who claim to be Christians and where they're at with their worldview, their perspective. We get down to terms like convictional Christian, once a month Christian. I, I don't know how these researchers keep it all straight, but what shocked you looking at some of that research about Christians in the United States? 
Yeah, well, according to the Pew Forum, who conducts a lot of this research on a large scale, and they track it over time, and called the Religious Landscape Studies. And what they found as recently as 2019 is that if you call people up and you ask them just a single question about what best describes their religious beliefs or their religious affiliation, you give them a list of things like Mormon, Jewish, Christian, atheist, agnostic. If you ask people that question, 65% of Americans will say, huh, Christian. And that's kind of shocking because most of us who are Christians look around and we say, well, it doesn't feel like nearly two-thirds right. of culture are really Christ followers. Right. So that seems really surprising. We have to realize that in that kind of research, really all it's looking at is how do people self-identify? What kind of label do they apply to themselves? They can mean all kinds of different things by Christian. So what we really want to know is how many people have a biblical worldview? In other words, how many people actually believe the core truths as taught in the Bible and seek to live accordingly? And for that research, you can look at Arizona Christian University's Cultural Research Center. And they have, instead of just asking people how you identify, they give dozens of questions to people directly about what they believe and how they live their lives. And then the researchers are the ones that classify, okay, these people have a basic biblical worldview. So they give them the, their behavior, and then the researchers say, okay, this is a convictional Christian, etc. The behavior plus the beliefs, right? Yeah. So they, they use That's good. over 40 questions. Yes, it's, it's great research. And what they found is that only about 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. Do you remember looking at that research, what would be some of those adjectives that describe that 6%? Well, I'm not sure about the adjectives, but they ask questions, especially about, do you believe in objective moral truths? Do you believe in the reality of heaven and hell? Do you believe that God is sovereign? So these are the kinds of questions that they're asking. A lot of pe times people think, well, do they have to check off a hundred different boxes to right. be considered as someone with a biblical worldview? And that's not it at all. They're just trying to get down to these basics, the, the core convictions of Christians. So in, in the research and looking at that, there's a gap between 65% of Americans who say, yes, I'm a Christian, and 6% who actually hold beliefs consistent with what we would assume that means yeah. is huge. It's and it's so critical gap. to look at the research because, uh, again, some researchers just ask, how often do you go to church? Right. Once a month, fewer, you know, less than once a month, more than once a month, and then that's how they qualify you as a Christian. And it seems a little thin, so that's important to know. Uh, how would you encourage us as believers to think about the postmodern culture? You know, I've often said recently, in the last few years, I mean, uh, with the pace of progressive liberalism, that the United States is in a post-Christian environment. Um, you know, those Judeo-Christian values that the nation was built upon aren't holding together like they used to. And you're seeing that certainly in the universities. But how do we as believers uh, behave in a postmodern culture and, uh, you know, encourage Christians particularly to become more Christian? Yeah, I think that what's really important as a starting point for that is for Christians to understand the nature of the worldview that surrounds us, because a lot of times it's not so openly hostile in terms of, okay, there is no God. When we hear that, we know, okay, that's in conflict with the Christian belief, obviously. But the cultural kinds of statements that we hear today are things like, follow your heart and you be you, be your authentic self. And Christians are not as in tune with what all of that means. And so the way that I summarize it is that secularism overall, this worldview that surrounds us is all about the authority of the self. 
In other words, it's all about the individual determining what's true about reality, what's right or wrong, good or bad for me personally. And of course, that's at fundamental odds with a Christian worldview where God is the authority about what matches up with reality because he's the creator of reality. And we look to God as a standard of what is right and wrong and good or bad. So this is why our culture is so fundamentally at odds with Christianity. We're talking about the authority of the self versus the authority of God. Yeah. Let me let me ask you this because uh, it's critical. It's that old adage, nothing new under the sun. This sounds very familiar to the very beginning of humanity with Adam and Eve that, you know, Satan tempted them with uh, the fruit of knowledge from the tree of knowledge, which God said, do not eat from that. Now, whether that's metaphor, you know, the point is that we took God out of that place mm-hmm. through that sin that we decided, oh, we could be full of knowledge and and be like God. And it hasn't changed, has it? I mean, it's similar in what the secularists are trying to sell us now. It's about you. It's about your happiness. It's about your joy. It's a me-ism religion. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's very fascinating, I think, because we could theoretically be surrounded by a worldview that's dominant in culture that we don't find particularly attractive, right? That's a possibility. But the worldview that surrounds us is actually something that the Bible itself tells us is so compelling to us by our very human nature. We all want to go our own way. Even as Christians, we still struggle with that. We still struggle with sin and wanting to be our own boss. Right. So here's secular culture over here saying, hey, it's okay. You are the expert. You're the expert on reality and what's true and false and good and bad, come on over here. It's very enticing. And you're right. It's been since the beginning of time that this is what it is. The Bible tells us what it is. So we should be prepared to look at a culture, see, okay, that's all the authority of the self. I know that that's my human nature. Now I need to concentrate on how I can remain clear. Yeah. And I I think, you know, even when you look at the church, the Christian community and divorce rates and those things, one of the toughest things that we battle in our existence is our selfishness. And I can remember, I think many, but Gary Thomas uh, wrote the book on marriage saying, you know, one of the core problems in marriage today is we're selfish creatures and we're not becoming more like Christ in our marriages, which is to lay yourself down and become more like Christ and be selfless. And it it just so goes against our sin nature, doesn't it? And it's coming out everywhere. I mean, and we're seeing it on full display right now, this this whole attention on me and my attitude and my preferences. I was watching through uh, that video of what is a woman and listening to some of the professors respond to that was bizarre. You know, well, whose truth is it? What truth are you talking about, Natasha? Hey, what does that even mean? Is there truth or is there no truth? And in, in it's interesting because in that documentary, what you see is that they, when when they're saying those things, they think that they actually have the moral high ground. So if you watch even the body language of it, you can see that they're kind of chuckling almost or smiling about it. And when you try to push them on it, as Matt Walsh does in the documentary, when you try to push them on it, they actually start to come back to a position of, okay, well, this is going to be done now. And right, so they're they happy, can't defend it. Right, they're happy to continue pushing you, but as soon as you push back on them, there's no, it's not logically coherent and they realize that and so once you get to a point of reason then they're going to back out and they're going to say I'm done. Many commentators, conservative and Christian commentators particularly, they pointed out that this progressive secularism has taken on kind of religious connotations that uh, you know they have an attitude that uh, fits a doctrine, a, a dogma 
that you have to believe or you're in trouble. Describe that environment. I mean, your, your background, you came out of UCLA, USC. Um, thankfully, you also went to Biola. <laughs> I love Biola. But uh, in that context, uh, describe how those ideas are formed and how that cathedral religion is being pressed, the secular religion is being pressed, especially in our universities. Yeah, it is fascinating because there's so much hostility toward religion and toward any kind of religious beliefs, but at the same time, it's just as dogmatic as any religion would be. And I think the the greatest area where we see this is in the area of morality, because ultimately, if you don't have an authoritative God who has revealed the things that God has in Scripture, then what you're left with is no objective basis for your morality. So culture and this is so interesting to me, but culture, without that basis, you would think they would say, hey, we don't believe that there's any objective basis for any kind of morality, so you you do you, I'll do me, and everyone's going to be fine. But we don't see that in culture. What they say is, hey, you're wrong and we're right, and yet they don't have any objective basis for it, yet they don't realize that. Mm. And so I think that's a really eye-opening part of the, the cultural incoherence that Christians need to open eyes to, because ultimately, if there's no objective basis for your morality, the one that secular culture is proclaiming, then there's nothing that they should be saying about how we're wrong and they're right. And that fits right in with that concept of the cancel culture. Uh, I've received some of that. You focus being at the tip of the spear in some ways with the idea of marriage, traditional marriage, etc. We get a lot of pushback and uh, people try to cancel us and our thoughts and ideas. Speak to cancel culture and uh, the abrasive nature of it and the, I think, uh, anti-intellectual nature of it. Yeah, I think cancel culture ultimately is, uh, at, at the very bottom level of it, is about saying that free speech is actually not the ultimate good because some speech is so harmful to oppressed groups that it's not worth protecting. And if you're going to come out and you're going to say something that we believe is harmful, that the idea itself is harmful to an oppressed community, if you're going to do that, then we're not going to allow you to have any platform whatsoever. And this is different than the traditional boycott. Sometimes people get these confused. With the traditional boycott, you're saying, well, I personally disagree with what you're doing or saying, so I'm not going to support you. There's nothing wrong with that. But cancel culture goes a step further and says, not only am I not going to support you as an individual, I want to make sure that as a group, as a culture, we're not going to allow you to speak to anyone at all. What's what's really scary about that is that is thought control. Absolutely. You know, and I've had the privilege of traveling around the world. I've been to China. I was in the Soviet Union. I was actually in the Soviet Union when uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was taken in the coup. I was there at the Ukraine Hotel right near Yeltsin's building. So I saw that. I went down, talked to people. Um, One of the humorous parts of that, I was down there and a woman came over, a Russian woman who could speak English, and she said, your president said you have to leave our country. And I said, oh, that's the great thing about democracy. We don't have to listen to our president. She was looking at me like, what? But in that context, that type of thought control and what I've seen after having those experiences is the danger for us in the U.S. is how it's coming from the grassroots. It's coming from the bottom up, which I think is insidious rather than the top down, because then you could say, you know, it's the man making us do this or making us think this or controlling our speech. But these are pressure groups. These are universities controlling what you can and cannot say by hiring you or firing you. It's, it, to me, is a lot more dangerous. 
It's very dangerous. It's been in the works for a long time. It's becoming especially apparent now. It's becoming obvious to more people. But these kinds of trends have been in play in the university, especially since the early 1900s, really. It's just mm -hmm. that today we're seeing the final result of what's already been taking place for several decades, actually. In this context of secularism, you mentioned four pillars in your book. What are the four pillars? So if we think about the authority of the self, you might think, well, that means that there are millions of people with millions of different worldviews. But at the end of the day, if you're the authority on everything, then there are some commonalities between all these individual authorities out there. And so I identify them as, number one, feelings are your ultimate guide. So if you don't have anything external to yourself, then the one thing you have to guide you is your feelings. How dangerous is that? It's extremely dangerous. And this is where we get these cute little things like follow your heart and be the authentic you and only you know what's best. Those sound a little innocuous at first if you don't think about them, but they are very much the tip of an entire worldview iceberg of the authority of the self. The second one is that happiness is the ultimate goal. So if feelings are your guide, you have to ask, well, okay, where are feelings guiding you? They're guiding you to whatever you subjectively determine to be your happy place. Mm -hmm. And I think this is why you see so much of this in culture, so much talk about, well, it made me happy. And you see that as a justification for so many things. How many times do we hear, for example, women who are pro-choice, who stand up and say, well, I'm actually happier because I had an abortion. They say this because the ends justify the means. Happiness is the goal. Therefore, everyone should look at this and say, well, then it must be okay because she's happy now. It's almost like the mic drop at the end of that story, right? Everyone's going to understand that happiness made this okay. So that's a very dangerous place to be too. When you are following your subjective feelings to your subjective happiness, you're in a very dangerous place. And all the Enforcement of those things through social media, the, the mainstream media. I mean, it's all about that. Absolutely. It's coming from all directions to reinforce that these are the right ways to live. Don't pay attention to anything that's external to yourself. You're the authority. Let so, me, yeah, I was going to say, let me ask you a question, then we'll continue on that train of thought. But w when you look at it again, how does a Christian withstand that kind of social, cultural influence? to not succumb to the very things we started with, with the research. I mean, how, how do you build enough of a spiritual fortress around your heart that you don't become the very thing that the culture is. Well, I think that's what's happening for a lot of Christians. The pressures are coming in and we're not even realizing it because we don't understand the nature of the culture. We don't understand ultimately what secularism is all about and how these messages are in great conflict with a biblical worldview. Once we can understand that, then we can start to look at things through a different lens. And that's how I hope that these pillars of secularism that I talk about in the book, I hope that they will help people to kind of give that lens for looking at things differently. That when you hear these things about your feelings, when you hear those key words about happiness or the third pillar judging is the ultimate sin, when you start to hear those things, then they should trigger you to think, okay, that is a worldview that is based on the authority of the self. As a Christian, I have a biblical worldview that's based on the authority of God and his word. And no matter what I feel, no matter what makes me subjectively happy, I'm going with what God's word says because that is my authority. That's the difference ultimately. Yeah. So three is judging. What's the fourth pillar? And the fourth one is that God is the ultimate guess. So in other words, secular culture is actually not totally godless. A lot of people think that secularism is synonymous with atheism, but that's not true. Actually, 90% of Americans do believe in a God or a higher power. But what's not okay is to believe in a specific God. As long as you believe in a generic God and it's just a guess as to who that God is or what he might want from us or any of those things, secular culture is okay with that. You can thank God in general, but you can 
cannot believe in a specific God who has actually revealed himself through something like Holy Scripture. Because now we know who he is and that there are certain requirements of us. People don't like that. because right. that challenges. truth. That's right, because that challenges yeah. the authority of the self. So really, God can only be a guess in secularism. It's okay if you want to think something's out there, but you can't claim to have any objective knowledge of the truth. Yeah, and that's, yeah, people get uncomfortable with that. And I think younger Christians particularly, as I've looked at the research, millennial Christians, they're very uncomfortable talking about faith with people who have no faith because they feel it's inappropriate or rude. Speak to that for a minute. I mean, is that how do we combat that as parents of these millennials and Gen Xers and Zers? Yeah, there's absolutely this cognitive dissonance going on for a lot of millennials because the research has found that about half of millennials say that it's wrong, actually wrong, to share your faith with someone in the hope that they will convert and share the same beliefs. Yet 96% of millennials also say that an important part of being a Christian is sharing about your faith. Those things don't really make sense together. On the one hand, you're saying, okay, it's important to do. On the other hand, you're saying it's wrong. So they have really been influenced by secular culture saying that God can only be a guest. Who are you to come along and say anything whatsoever about what I should or shouldn't believe? Natasha, let me let me ask you this in that regard, because it's important to be a bit self-introspective, uh, if I could say it that way. What has led to that uneasiness? What did we do that may have caused younger Christians to say, oof, they were too aggressive. The older generation was too aggressive. The culture war was too aggressive. Um, Speak to that perception that maybe our grandparents and parents didn't do it the way they should have done it. I've heard that. And there's some truth to that. There's always going to be human error in how we execute the gospel and, and talk with people. But there should be a little bit of grace to say you know, our humanness is going to come into that at times. But thinking back on it and looking at the last 40 years where so much secularism has gained ground, what perhaps has the church done you know, incorrectly that has caused some of that, if anything? You know, I would actually say that it's more the individual experiences that younger people have had with the church or with Christians today. Unfortunately, I don't think a lot of them are very familiar with our history. I think that's a really big problem, actually, Mm. uh, either with church history or with our American history in general. So I think that it's more about how they perceive Christians today. And a lot of times people say that they've been hurt by the church in some way, or they've encountered Christians who are overly harsh in how they were sharing their faith, or they see people online. Social media has really facilitated some pretty harsh conversations. And there's, you know, it's not just non-believers who have these kinds of conversations. We're also guilty of not carrying ourselves in the right way when we're talking online. So I think that those kinds of conversations have really turned a lot of young people away. But at the same time, I think, you know, to what you're saying, there should be some grace in in recognizing, hey, everyone is a human and I'm not going to judge whether or not Christianity is true or whether I should listen to what they have to say because I encountered someone who had a, a brash personality. But no one's getting that today. But I think that's ultimately because they're more attracted to what the secular culture has to offer. So it's very easy to say, oh, I encountered some crazy Christians. I don't want any part of that. I'm going to walk away over here because I like this better. It's comfy and soft. It's comfortable. You know, one of the things I can remember talking to a man I worked with back when I was in the business world, and he was a headhunter and a Jewish man. And I remember him saying to me, you know, Jim, I just, every Christian business person I've worked with, they cheated me out of money or did something negative. And, uh, you know, we used to go to lunch and have that discussion. I said, 
to this gentleman, I won't use his name, but I would say, you know, it seems pretty short-sighted to allow a human being to irritate you to the point where you stop pursuing God. I mean, that's the biggest uh, mistake a human being, in my opinion, could make, is that because somebody shortage you 20 bucks, you're not going to find salvation through Christ and eternal life. Wow, you're on the wrong end of that decision. And, you know, I would encourage people that have had a bad experience with somebody to understand that people are sinners. Christians are sinners. We're forgiven, but uh, we still have a sin nature in this world. So, you know, don't let a bad experience or many bad experiences with people that call themselves Christians may not be living up to uh, the creed of the Christian faith to discourage you from pursuing God. That is a bad decision. Do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Very well said. And I think especially given those statistics that 65% of people call themselves a Christian, but only 6% hold beliefs that are consistent with what the Bible teaches, you have to assume that means the vast majority of people you encounter who call themselves Christians aren't actually believing or living the way that the Bible would call us to. So everyone should be aware of that, not just Christians. I mean, that is an in-house discussion of how did we get to that point, but non-believers should understand that just as much and want to seek what's true in the Bible. See, what does the Bible say specifically? I'm not going to judge this by one individual. That person may or may not have beliefs that line up with the Bible at all. I need to go straight to God's word to understand, well, what does this say? Or what does this claim? Even if you're not at the point of calling it God's word yet. And what a great scheme by the enemy of our souls to get people to do stupid things to prevent you from pursuing a faith and a path with God, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's just be exactly what Satan would do. Uh, let me ask you about this issue of equality. That's big, you know, the equality issue. It sounds right. I mean, people want to be treated equally. That's good. Uh, but outcomes, uh, it typically moves into that idea that we need equal outcomes for people with their labor, with their remuneration of labor, all those kinds of things. Describe the battle of equality and what it truly means or doesn't mean. Well, this is one of those examples where if you want to get moral buy-in to something that's different than what people have already held, you're going to have to redefine the language in some way. My background is in marketing, actually, before I ever got into writing and speaking. And so I can see right through this that actually secular culture markets a new kind of morality to us, which is quite fascinating to watch. And really, that starts with redefinition. It's redefining key words that people have a positive association with already and now lumping your view in with that. So whereas equality used to just mean, okay, we all are of inherently equal value, which is, by the way, from a biblical worldview. Made in the image of God. (laughs) Made in the image of God, (laughs) exactly. It comes from the biblical worldview that we can claim that humans are all equal. We've moved from that to equality being conflated with all kinds of other things, such as okay, well, you're equal and therefore any of your moral choices are going to be of equal value also. Or you're equal, so you're going to have equal rights to all things. But we know that just because a person, all people are inherently equal, that doesn't necessarily mean we all have the exact same rights. Children are equal, but don't have the same rights as adults, for example, in a society. So you see this, all of these kind of conflations of the word equality with other things that are going on. And then Christians especially feel bad and they say, well, I'm for equality. Of course we're for equality. We're for the inherent equality of all mankind. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to extend the concept of equality to all these other things like equality of outcome, for example, or equity, as the word is now used. Yeah. That area of of LGBT 
rights. I mean, we, in our lifetime, we've seen that go from zero to 120 miles per hour, right? I mean, uh, through the Obergefell decision, et cetera, court decisions, more and more rights have been given to the LGBT community. I think when you live in a secular culture, and I think that's the wake-up call for many Christians, we thought socially we had these uh, compacts set and that things would not move. But over the last 10, 20 years, things have moved rather quickly. And for us you know, that are a bit older, it's been stunning to see the movement of some of the rights that have been given. And uh, I can remember I wrote a book called Refocus uh, many years ago, and it hit on some of these issues that we're talking about. And I remember doing a book signing at a liberal bookstore here in town, and the owner called me and was very kind and said, I'd like to have you come and speak. And, you know, there are probably 40 or 50 people in the audience, and I gave my comments, and a gay activist was there, uh, probably more than one, but he raised his hand and said, you know, when are you guys in the Christian community going to get over your archaic sexual connotations and kind of catch up to the 21st century? And I was kind of smiling, and I think it irritated him. And I said, boy, that, it's incredible that you would give me the authority to edit the Word of God. But I'm just a follower of it. Your issue is really with him, with God himself, because he prescribed this for human flourishing that men and women, even Jesus himself, said a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So the very nature of God shown in that kind of coupling of male and female, it's the spirit of God being demonstrated on this earth. And, you know, I just said, I'm a follower. You can attack me. You can cancel me. But this is what I believe because it's what the word says, and I'm going to follow it to the best of my ability. And to his credit, he said, well, touche, and sat down. But, I mean, sometimes we get defensive when we don't need to be. I think that the issue is that that mentality that you just described of, okay, my authority is God, and he has revealed himself and who we are and how we are to relate and what's sinful and not sinful in the Bible, that is so foreign to people's thinking today that they don't even stop to consider that that's why we would hold any kind of beliefs that they consider to be archaic. They're just coming from this this presupposition that all of us are on our own journey to make our own decisions about whatever it is in life that we think is good or bad, right or wrong. And they're looking at us and saying, well, why are you choosing this? Why are you deciding? that you see things this way. I don't think it occurs to the vast majority of people, especially younger people today, that we see our authority outside of ourselves and that we're looking to the Bible and saying, it's not me who thinks this, it's what God himself has said. And because he's my authority, I'm going to go with what God has said. I think it is just a foreign way of thinking to culture today. And a reminder for the listener who doesn't know where they fit in that research (laughs) that we've been talking about. I mean, if you feel that maybe I am not that convictional Christian, these are great things to think about. I mean, in the end, when you're facing God, how do you want to report your activity? You know, that you did the best you could to live up to his standards, to represent him, to love him and to love your neighbor. Those are all wonderful things, but it does take action on our part to live to the prescription that God has given us. And when you don't, you're a hypocrite. Right? 
Yeah, it, it, takes, <laughs> it takes a lot of conviction. And I would say to anyone listening who maybe feels like, well, I don't have that level of conviction. I think, you know, as an apologist, I have to say, well, that's where learning how to make a case for and defend your, your faith through apologetics can be very helpful. Because if you're sitting here thinking, well, I would follow God's word if I thought that it was God's word, but I'm not sure. There are so many books out there that are helpful to people in terms of learning why there's good reason to believe that the Gospels are based on eyewitness testimony and that they have been accurately transmitted over time and that the translations are accurate. All those things give you the conviction that you can trust the Bible as God's word truly. Yeah. Another uh, firebrand in the culture right now is social justice. And what does that mean? Justice overall. And I think, you know, the, the Christian church has a, an incredible track record on justice. I mean, when you look at what the Christian church provided the, the world over centuries, whether it was hospitals or orphanages, those are things that were all started within the Christian community in 200, 300, 400 A.D., and, uh, you know, those traditions carried through even to hospitals here in the U.S., Catholic hospitals, Protestant hospitals. And uh, it's been an incredible tradition. And most secularists don't even understand the history of justice in that context. Right. And that comes down to the definition of justice. So we were talking about the redefinition of words and justice is one of those redefined words throughout the centuries. Just like you described, Christians have been passionate about justice. Christians have been passionate about justice from God's perspective of taking care of the poor and those who were marginalized by society and those who needed the help. The, the Christians were taking care of the babies who were abandoned and the widows and the orphans and building hospitals and all of these things. But today, justice means something very different different. Instead of looking at people who are poor and maybe marginalized by society in that way, they're looking at groups of people and saying, do you feel oppressed? So now you have people who say, well, I feel oppressed because there's a gender binary, for example. I feel oppressed by you even claiming that there are, is some kind of biological reality to male and female people. That would not be consistent with a biblical view of justice because God's justice is not the same standard as a human standard of justice, which is that I feel oppressed in some way. And so when we redefine these words, once again, Christians feel like, oh, wow, well, I, of course I want to be for justice, but not everything the world calls justice is justice. It's the same with reproductive justice. How about that term, right? Reproductive justice, I have the right now to kill my unborn baby. And that's labeled justice. This is not God's justice. This is not the same kind of justice that as Christians we should believe in given God's word. Boy, that is such a good point. And Natasha, you've cited research that indicates, uh, in my mind, only a little over half of churchgoers believe we can know for certain what the meaning and purpose of life is. That's a bit shocking, actually. I think the number was 54% of churchgoers believe uh, you know, there's that absolute knowledge and ability to know the purpose of life. I would think it'd be like 90% for churchgoers. What's the gap there? I think that we've let secular culture put that pressure on us of God being the ultimate guest, like we were talking about earlier. When God's the ultimate guest and people think no one can really know for sure, and we hear that over and over again, then Christians start to embrace that too. We think, well, this is the position I'm going to stake out on for whatever reason in your own life, but I don't know for absolute sure. And I think that we've had that kind of uncertainty that's pressed into us, and then we embrace it and you end up seeing statistics like that. That's amazing. Uh, you've shared an example of how the culture entices someone away from the biblical worldview. 
uh, you wrote about a woman named Glennon Doyle. Uh, what was her story, and, and why did that demonstrate that fact of moving away from a Christian worldview? So she was kind of known as a Christian mom blogger several years back, and she ended up leaving her husband and children for a lesbian relationship. And she wrote this book called Untamed, which is a best-selling book. There, at one period in time, you could see women everywhere reading this book. Very popular, but basically what it was was encouraging everyone to go after your dreams, follow your heart, do what you want to do so that you can be untamed. And that's a really good example, I think, of this whole aspect of feelings are the guide and happiness is the goal. And the media just loved this book. All the reviews were talking about how courageous she was and how this was so empowering for women. That's what is worthy of praise in our culture today. When you go and do whatever it is you want to do, don't worry about who you're leaving behind as long as you're being your authentic self. That is praiseworthy. You know, and I, I'm not sure this is um, strictly an American experience, but it seems that we have such an attitude toward authority. I don't know if it's that individualism streak that we tend to have, or is this something that's just in human nature from the beginning, that we don't like authority. We don't like being accountable to something else. Our spouse, in some cases, our family, uh, certainly a God that, you know, we may not even agree with, right? And so in that context, I mean, that's what they're going for, right? You're accountable to no one. Right. Just go for it. Be wild. Yeah, be untamed. Go be your wild (laughs) self because that's going to ultimately make you happy. Okay, so if you're talking to a 20-something in that regard and you're able to sit with them one-on-one, why would you say, caution, that may not be the wisest thing to do with your life. What's the explanation from a Christian perspective? You know, I think the best way to get someone's attention is to draw that logic out to its natural conclusion. So use an example where everyone would say, well, you can't do that. So I would say, if you think that you should really just do what makes you happy, let me ask you this. What if you wanted to go rape someone because that made you happy? What if you wanted to go kill someone because that made you happy? Do you think you should do it then? And they're going to say, well, no, of course not. So the question is, why? Why would you not do something that would make you subjectively happy? And I think that helps to get people thinking about there's some kind of standard. There's some kind of benchmark here for what's okay and what's not okay. Yeah, there's a line, but where is it drawn? Exactly. And so then you can have that conversation Mm -hmm. about, well, how do we know where the line is drawn? If there is no God and we're all just molecules moving around, there's no line to be had. You go rape someone, you go murder someone, and that's not morally right or wrong. But if there is a God and he sets that objective moral standard, then you're going to do things potentially in opposition with that, that maybe you feel make you happy, but actually are for your destruction. Yeah. I want to raise uh, an example that I remember interviewing uh, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, who was at Syracuse University before she became a Christian, head of women's studies, queer studies, lesbian relationships. And then a pastor reached out to her. She started in a context of wanting to bait them and challenge them intellectually, she went to their home for dinner. And over the course of about two years, continuing in that relationship with this pastor and his wife, she became a Christian and and married a man who actually is a pastor. And she told me a story where she went to a Christian university and she was picketed by about 200 students with signs demeaning her for coming out straight at a Christian university, at, that always stuck in my mind. Like, what is going on at that 
Christian university that 200 students would come out to protest a woman who was lesbian and became a Christian and married a man and, and has children and the whole bit. I mean, what would motivate a Christian student to show up and protest a woman who's got a powerful testimony in Christ? Well, I think we have to remember that a lot of students at Christian universities are not necessarily Christians. Their parents probably are because their parents wanted them to go there. So you end up having a lot of students that are pushed into Christian universities by their parents, and they go there, and they can influence other students who may go there as convicted believers, and they pull them along. So secularism is just as much of a pressure cooker for students at a Christian university for that reason. And there's there's actually been quite a bit that's come out about various Christian universities in the last couple of years about how they're platforming people in their chapels who are very much promoting secular ideas of social justice, becoming very woke in a lot of their departments. And there are a lot of reasons to think that the faculty themselves at a lot of Christian universities are perpetuating some ideas that are very much in conflict with the biblical worldview. As a parent, I have two 20-somethings. I met your 11-year-old daughter. She's very sweet and kind. And, uh, you know, what do we do to combat that kind of infiltration into our children's souls? How do we, you know, some often as Christians, we're leaning on the church to do the training spiritually of our children. And if we're that separate from our day-to-day life, as the research is showing, I can only imagine that in our parenting methodologies and, and approaches, we're not getting the job done. What practical suggestion do you have for parents when you hear these stories? I mean, parents are going, what? That happened where? At a Christian university? What can we do in that drip irrigation of having our children zero to 18 to do the best job we can do? teach your kids about the culture. And this is this is an area of absolute passion for me because I think one of the most misleading ideas that a lot of Christian parents have is that I'm just going to teach my kids truth, we're going to focus on the Bible, and they're going to be able to handle anything that they encounter. And I think we see over and over again, and I hear the stories from parents, and we see all this bared out in the statistics, this just is not enough. Of course they have to understand God's Word. They have to understand truth. But a lot of times, if they don't understand the nature of the cultural around them, and and why it's problematic and why it's not consistent with the biblical worldview, then kids are going out, they're hearing things like, well, yeah, I'm going to follow my heart. Yeah, I'm a Christian too. They don't see how those things can't fit together. So what I do with my kids, one of the most practical things is that we are always talking about current events. I will send them articles and say, you know, look at the, the underlying presupposition here. Or we'll talk about memes that I see on social media. I'll pull them down and I'll save them to share them with them at dinner, for example. Yeah, very I, active. Yes, very much. I'm constantly bringing them examples from culture to show this is all about feelings being the guide, happiness being the goal, judging being the sin. See how this differs from what we would believe as Christians. So when our kids understand both truth and how truth compares explicitly to the secularism around us, they have a clarity so that when they go off to college, they're already prepared to look around and understand that this is not biblical Christianity, and then they can be stronger in, yeah. in their faith. Yeah, that's really good. Uh, you use an analogy of the big boat 
kind of sinking the smaller boats in the wake of that big boat, and this is in relation to cancel culture, how does that metaphor fit? What are you trying to point out there? Well, I was talking about how when I've been in little boats on a lake or some kind of small body of water, when I see a big boat coming around, I always brace myself because I know that pretty soon all those huge waves are going to hit me in the little boat, and I kind of dread that moment. But it's even worse if you don't see the big boat. If you're not paying attention and you don't see how that large boat is coming, you're going to get rocked by the waves as soon as they hit you and you're not prepared at all. So that very much fits into what we were just talking about, that if you're not prepared for those big waves that are coming your way, then you're not going to know how to respond. And as it relates to cancel culture, my point there was that we see cancel culture happening with celebrities and high profile people in culture. A lot of times we think, well, that's out there. That's them. But cancel culture, if we don't pay attention to those big waves, we don't realize that's going to hit us in our little personal Mm. lifeboats as well. We're going to be cut off from friends, from employers, from family members, because of the same mentality that's being pushed at us by that big boat of cancel culture. When people don't like our ideas, they don't like our beliefs, we're going to be cut off just as much, even if we don't have a public platform. Yeah. You mentioned the book, and I didn't catch the story when it happened, but when uh, now Justice Amy Coney Barrett was being appointed to the Supreme Court, I think it was the Girl Scouts, you know, tweeted or sent a social media message of congratulations as the fifth woman to be appointed to the Supreme Court, and then they got pummeled for that. So I guess uh, Amy Coney Barrett just isn't the right woman. Is that what happened? Right, because she's pro-life. Right. And so people were outraged that the Girl Scouts, this organization for girls who are developing young ladies, it it was an outrage that you would actually congratulate somebody who is pro-life. Isn't it odd that the Girl Scouts, their very survival is based on the fact that you need girls to be in the Girl (laughs) Scouts and that they support abortion to the point of that kind of embarrassment that they would chide or retract a congratulations to Amy Coney Barrett simply because she's pro-life. That's the future customer of the Girl Scouts. And they apologized for it. That's for saying bizarre. it in the first place. It, it, it wasn't a silent removal. It was a removal plus an apology. Yeah. But there are a lot of actual local Girl Scout troops who are fully supporting uh, pro-choice marches. If you look at the, the hand guides that they have, they're all about all of the woke things that you can imagine. I, I looked at one Girl Scout guide and it was talking about how to handle pronouns and especially how to introduce yourselves within the troop. And, and it was just over the top in terms it's of It's always puzzled what they were me, doing. like amusement parks that uh, are pro-choice are eliminating the very customers they're going to have in three or four years. You know, those kids are going to come to their parks, but hey, we only want half the kids coming. It's, it's an absurd intellectual pretzel. They're looking for public support. Yeah, it's crazy. It's it's all around us. Yeah. Paul in the New Testament set a great example for us in Athens. And again, this is that idea of speaking truth in love. It sounds great. We get in the way of that because we get emotional about it. And you speak very specifically to how to do this in a way that you're not trying to win an argument or a debate or, you know, pressure somebody, but you need to speak the truth in love. How does Paul show us the way and how do we do that today? 
Well, Paul in Acts 17 is completely unafraid of what anyone's going to think about him. He goes into this marketplace and he sees these idols and the Bible says he was very distressed. So he didn't just look around and see something that was concerning to him and then go sit down while he was waiting for somebody to come along. He was distressed and then he did something about it. He went into the marketplace and he preached to anyone who was willing to listen. And he looked at what they were doing. He looked at the fact that they had an idol there, that they had an altar to an unknown God. And he used that as a launching point for his conversation, for what he was going to talk about. And he basically said, hey, you guys are worshiping something, but you don't even know what you're worshiping. Let me tell you who he is. Let me tell you who God is. And he goes on to talk about who God is, who man is, the problem in our relationship and what they need to do in response. And he goes through this all just in the marketplace. And I think one of the most interesting things about that passage to me is that it actually says that there were people there who didn't understand what he was talking about. This was kind of a foreign idea to them. And they said, you know, can you explain more about what you're saying? Because we don't understand what it is. I just think that's so funny because today, can you imagine if people went to Christians and said, hey, we don't really understand what you believe. Can you tell us more? <laughs> we, we often don't see that people don't want to know more. So we're in a little bit of a different place today. But Paul sets this great example for us of not being afraid, of being distressed by what he sees, going into the marketplace, talking to people, not shying away from it, and realizing that it wasn't enough for them to just know that there's some generic God out there, just like in today's culture. It's not enough for people to know that. You need to know who he is, and we can tell you because he's revealed himself. Correct. And I, I think attitudinally, that's what the point is that you're making, is that Paul found a way to, to really get them into the discussion. What I find really interesting too, some in that same context, uh, Mars Hill, you know, that some referred to Paul as a babbler. Who is this babbler? Which is really funny because when you read the letters of Paul, I mean, they are deep. They are amazingly intellectual and deep connecting spiritual things to the earthly things. And for them to call him a babbler, <laughs> I would have loved to heard them speak, right? I mean, to me, it's a little bit comical. When you look at the similarities between Rome and what Christ came to this earth in, and you know the zealots and those that were wanting to throw the yoke off of the Roman rule, and they were expecting the Messiah to deliver kind of a military approach, you know, to free themselves from this tyranny. Um, what can we learn in our own Christian experience in this country? with the limits of political power. It, Jesus didn't sit down with Caesar and say, okay, Caesar, let's get this all set, and this is how it's gonna work, and I'm God and you're not, and this is what we're gonna do. He didn't go to that source of power. He kind of avoided it, interestingly enough. He didn't talk face to face with Herod. He wouldn't even respond to his questions. Um, how do we apply that to today's environment? And are we looking for the wrong thing when it comes to a solution to get us back to a Judeo-Christian country through the political system? Ooh, that's a big one. That's huge. <laughs> that's a huge question. I could say a whole lot about that. But uh, I think what we can learn especially is that just because you don't have the government on your side doesn't mean that Christianity, true Christianity, can't flourish. We saw the church go from a tiny, tiny movement in the middle of Roman Palestine into a flourishing body and into everything that we see today in the church. And so there's no doubt that you don't have to have the government on your side. And indeed, we saw through the Middle Ages that when government was was 
conflated with the church, that there were many, many issues there, that this was not the ideal situation. So it's interesting because we have a secular government today, meaning that there's no state-sponsored church. We don't have an authority of a given religion in our country. And that's actually a good thing. Sometimes Christians think that's a bad thing, but that's a good thing because we have freedom of religion and we have freedom of worship, and that's great. But I also would add that within that, as Christians, we have the opportunity and we have the rights as citizens of this country to advocate for the common good. So it's not that we're looking for the government to be the solution necessarily, but we should be advocating for the common good of others when it comes to pro-life policies, for example. If we decide that we're going to completely retreat from so-called politics because we don't want to be associated with that and Jesus didn't go to the government and try to take over, I think we're missing the boat. We have to understand that part of being salt and light and preserving a culture and being a light is looking at how politics does influence everything around us. And so there is a healthy role for Christians as citizens in the society to advocate for for that common good. Um, let's get practical. We're in that direction. You mentioned four questions that we should ask to engage uh, the unbeliever. What are the four questions? And let's discuss them a bit because they're really important. So these are four questions that I think are helpful for determining how do we go about speaking truth. The first one is, is this something worth speaking up about? And I mean by that in any individual case that we see. So let me let me stop you for a second because that almost feels feels like a little retreat. And I totally understand what you mean, but using discernment to know, is this a hill to die on or is this a little mohill? That's what you're saying. That takes a lot of thought and prayer. It does, because we can't respond to absolutely every errant idea we see. You, You just can't do that. And we will drive ourselves crazy. We'll become bitter and angry ourselves at dealing with all this, especially on social media. I'm kind of talking about it in that context. So for example, I've seen a lot of times where someone will post something celebrating Pride Month, for example, and a Christian will come along and just pop in a comment that says something like, well, I don't celebrate sin. You know, in that context, I'm not saying it's wrong to do that, but it's probably not going to lead to some kind of conversation. It's like if we post a Bible verse and an atheist comes along and puts in a comment that says, well, I don't believe in God. All you've basically done is state your respective worldviews, and there's no conversation being had. So when we ask ourselves, is this really something we're speaking up about right now? It's not to say, oh, this isn't an important issue, for example, but it's asking ourselves right now in this context of what this person is saying, is this the time to do it? Okay. So that's the first question. All right. What's the second? So the second one is, what is my motivation for doing Mm. this? And this is where we have to really be introspective because, and I'm just as guilty of this as anyone else, a lot of times we want to point out what's wrong with the way someone's thinking about something. We want to win an argument, or maybe we're really annoyed by someone and we want to make them look foolish. There are all kinds of reasons why maybe we want to say something not for the glory of God, but for the glory of ourself. So we have to check our motivations. And that's not to say we have to be pure as the driven snow either in order to say but something. But it's humble. But it's, yeah, it's it's a humbling to really look at yourself and say, okay, am I doing this for the right reasons right mm. now? Because if we do say the right things, but for the wrong reasons, sometimes those things don't quite come out that the way, the way that they could have or should have. Right. And third? And the third one is, should I say this publicly or privately? So this That's is a, always a good question to ask it's yourself. A, it's a hugely important question when you're talking about social media and everything that happens online now. And I've had to learn this myself a lot because in my mind, just logically speaking, if someone posts something on social media, they should know it's there for social consumption and I have the right to respond socially, right? right? But we have to check ourselves in that and say, okay, yes, I have the right because this is that context. But if I'm saying this for the glory of God and because I 
I want to lead this person to some kind of knowledge of the truth, maybe it's better if I do take this private. Because if it would have made them look foolish or if I would have made them feel uncomfortable for some reason, maybe the best thing is to not do what I supposedly have the right to do because it's a social platform, but to do what I should do by taking it private for a more productive conversation. Yeah, it's good. And then the fourth one is what's the best way to say what I'm going to say. I think that's a great context to figure out how to say it. Yeah, there are all kinds of ways to say any given thing and to really <laughs> think about what are we saying? How do we do that? And what I suggest is that the best way to start almost anything is by finding a point of commonality because that puts people in a more comfortable place rather than it seeming like you're attacking them and putting them on the defensive. It's a way of saying, hey, you know what? I think where we both agree on this is that human rights are really important. But what I think we are disagreeing about is how to define human rights and where those rights come from. And then go on to talk about from a biblical perspective. And I always use that terminology because I want to make it clear. It's not just me saying this out of my own opinion, like someone else might assume, as we were talking about before, but this is where I'm getting my view. From a biblical perspective, rights are given by God himself, that we're inferring this from our human equality and explain it from that perspective. What I think you're saying, and then ask them, am I correct in assuming that you're saying that human rights are whatever the case in this yeah. conversation? Why is that so difficult for us to find that patience? I mean, that's true in marriage counseling. They'll say, this is how you should engage with your spouse to reduce conflict, etc. Very similar. You know, what I hear you saying, honey, is, <laughs> but we don't go there, unfortunately. We go right to, hey, why are you picking on me? And you get defensive or you attack. And we do the same in our conversations with other people. And it, it is amazing. Jesus usually started with questions, right? Yeah. I think that we have such a small attention span today <laughs> that everyone assumes that everyone else has the small attention span. And so we're like, I'm going to get right in there with my quick point and try to get somebody to listen to me rather than taking that time. But that's also why I think it's so much of the time it's important to take a conversation private because we get snippier when we're in that public realm. We think people are watching and then it becomes like a public battle where we want to be seen as the smarter one or the victor in some way. So I think we can avoid a lot of that by taking these things into private discussions. Yeah. And Tasha, this has been so good. I mean, you have hit so many issues, and I'm looking forward to reading the book more thoroughly, and I hope other people will pick up a copy. They can get it here at Focus on the Family. But, man, uh, you have really done a stellar job of consolidating what we're facing in the culture and how to move forward. When you look to the future and you have young children, um, how do you stay optimistic that, uh, you know, it's not all going south I mean, I meet a lot of people, I meet a lot of young Christians that actually I feel are very on fire. They may be a smaller number, but I think they're a committed number. And I don't share kind of the pessimism that a lot of older Christians have, because I think God, you're really questioning God then, that he put the right souls in this generation to really meet the challenge, right? When we start saying, I don't think these young Christians are going to do it well. I mean, you're really saying, God, you didn't do it right. Right. I think it, there's a pr there's a pruning that's happening. Yeah. I think, I've heard a lot of people use that terminology. I think it's absolutely right. I don't think that we need to hold on to that 65% of people so tightly and say, we just need more people to label themselves as a Christian. That's not what we need. We need more people to be committed followers of Christ. And so if there's a pruning happening where people are being forced to really contend with what do I believe? Who is my authority? If they're actually in this position of having to think through that more than maybe they had to in the past as a cultural Christian, 
that's a good thing. And we know that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Yeah. And so we know how this ends. And that is the source of our hope and our optimism, not in any particular battle, not in any particular movement or trend of today, but in what God has said from the beginning. That's Natasha Crane. And man, I couldn't agree more about the need to be hopeful because as Christians, we can trust that God is always in control. Man, I'm telling you, I'm so thankful for the lessons I learned as an orphan boy that I could trust God no matter what the circumstance was. And I think that was one of the wonderful nuggets that he gave me as a child, that he's with us always, period. Don't doubt it. Uh, As believers, we can remain optimistic as we hold tightly to the teachings of Jesus, no matter what the culture says. And not long ago, I was on the stage with an older Christian leader, and he said in a panel discussion that he wasn't sure that the next generation was going to be able to do the things that the Lord required of them. And I thought to myself, wow, that's that's a big assumption that God doesn't have the right people in the generation in this moment. I would like to believe that God knows what he's doing and he's got exactly the right generation and the right people following him in that generation to do his good work. And I'd like to come from that perspective. I can remember one time being at a bookstore here in town and a rather liberal bookstore owner had called me and said he wanted to uh, let me do an author day where I signed books and give a little critique of my own book with an audience. So they probably had 60 or 70 people at this bookstore downtown in Colorado Springs. And I remember there was a gay activist there and he raised his hands during the Q&A portion and he said, you know, when will Christians leave their antiquated sexual appetites behind? You know, this is the 21st century and it would be good if y'all could catch up with the rest of us. And I'm smiling. He could see that. And he said, well, you know, what, what's so funny? I said, well, it's, you know, it's just awesome that you want to make me the editor or the author of the book, but I'm a follower of the book. I can't rewrite it. I can't erase it. I'd like to get rid of, uh, you know, some things in there that say when you look at a woman, you have lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Let's remove that one. But that's not what Christians do. We're there to follow the book. We're there to yield and bend to the scripture. And uh, that is the great battle. Natasha's insights remind me of 1 Corinthians 2.13, which says, this is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. Man, that's awesome. That's what I was trying to do there. The human wisdom around us is simply no match for the truth of Christ. Oh man, where was your wisdom when I formed the world? Let's just think about that. Uh, Be sure to get a copy of Natasha Crane's great book, Faithfully Different, Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. You can use it to prepare your kids for what they're going to face in the culture. It is a great resource. When you donate a gift of any amount to the podcast, I'll send you a copy of the book as a way of saying thank you. You'll find the link in the episode notes. Here as we wrap up, I want to hear what's on your mind, especially about sharing Christ with others and interacting with others in our culture. I invite you to send in some questions or experiences that you've had for our future inbox segments, like this one from Greg. He said, I try to represent Christ with what I post about on social media, but posting about a Christian worldview on subjects like my pro-life stance has brought on a lot of hateful comments. How can I stay true to my faith without turning everything into a battle? Well, unfortunately, Greg, uh, social media is a battlefield. I think it's so hard to explain or express kindness 
because you can't see the other person and there's no real interaction in that way. It's just these typed out words that you sit there and read and you could put any emotion to them that you want to. So one of the things I would do if you're going to talk about truth in that social media space, be as kind and as gentle as you can to make sure those words come across accordingly. Even Natasha had mentioned that, you know, it's always best to engage in private conversations rather than talking about your beliefs in such a public way. Social media is just a hard place to have interactions. So that would be the one thing. I mean, I would concentrate on areas where the person can see you fully, your coworkers going out to lunch with people that you know that don't know the Lord. That is a great place to go. Good question, Greg. Thanks for that. I look forward to receiving your questions. Go to our website, refocuswithjimdaily.com, and click the button on the side of the show page to leave us a voicemail. And if I answer your question on the podcast, you'll receive my book, Refocus, Living a Life That Reflects God's Heart. Be sure to like, listen, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And then listen to my next episode, a conversation with Arthur Brooks, coming up on May 8th. He'll talk about drawing others to the light of Christ in the culture through relationships. I mean, I gave a, a full-length speech about love your enemies and about how you know we can love our enemies, which is not to say like our enemies, but to love our enemies is to commit to reconciliation as a plan of life, notwithstanding our feelings, and that we can do this. Until next time, thanks for joining me for Refocus with Jim Daly. God wants true disciples, ones that think like him, talk like him, walk like him, disciples that bring shalom to the chaos of this world. Pursue that path with the RVL Discipleship Series. Bible scholar Ray Vanderlaan will give you the tools to understand the Bible more deeply and inspire you to be a passionate follower of Christ. Watch the first episode at rvldiscipleship.com.